episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Jill Schaffeld, your host for today. I'm excited to talk to today's guest, Dr. Melody Blackledge. She's a very long-standing legacy at Cincinnati Children's, um, and today we consult with her on hypermobility spectrum disorders. So welcome, Dr. Blackledge. Thank you. So let's start and just learn a little bit about you and your history. So maybe just how long you've been practicing, a little bit about your background, um, and then maybe specifically at Cincinnati Children's and your special interests. Well, my special interest in hypermobility began way before my training. I was uh, born with a congenital hip dislocation and grew with a childhood of marked by um, mobility challenges and pain. And I decided very early on that I wanted to be a pediatrician because I wanted to prevent another child from having that diagnosis missed. So I achieved that. I'm one of the very fortunate ones. I um, went to medical school at University of Cincinnati, did my residency at Cincinnati Children's, and was in private practice pediatrics for 18 years before my challenges made it more difficult to safely handle babies and young children. Then I moved back to Children's and did a variety of jobs and finally ended up in the Adolescent Medicine Clinic. And it, I was there when human genetics tapped me on the shoulder and said, you know, we really need someone to help us with the hypermobility clinic. Someone who has a good fund of general knowledge because that's what it takes to really help these patients. So I've been with the hypermobility clinic now for four and a half years, and um, I'm finding I'm being able to still help patients whose journeys are similar to my own. Wonderful. What a personal great experience to be able to share with the families you treat as well. I'm sure that really just bonds you, but also I think there's such a nice sense of trust that comes from someone who's been through some similar challenges to it, those families and patients. It's interesting you mention that because I don't mention that to patients because when I'm with the patients, it's their story, not mine. But I do feel that having watched my parents challenged with hypermobility, what I lived th have lived through, and then my daughter with the same hypermobility challenges, I, I certainly listen with a different ear because I have, luckily, a great understanding of those challenges. That's wonderful. Yeah. And you mentioned you have been with the hypermobility clinic for four years. Is that how long the clinic itself has been standing? So, <laughs> so before it was called the Connective Tissue Clinic within human genetics, and it was that basically because prior to the current diagnostic criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and the Ehlers-Danlos Syndromes in general, it was thought that hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos, like the other Ehlers-Danlos syndromes, all had a genetic origin, and a testable, definable genetic cause. By the time they tapped me on the shoulder, the new diagnostic criteria had just come out, and it was pretty evident this is maybe not a genetic issue. It may be inherited, multifactorial. That question still hasn't been settled. But the reasoning was, you know what, we just need a good, solid general practitioner to help us with these patients so then we as the geneticists can focus on the, the other genetic causes of other diseases. That's perfect. And we'll delve into that a little bit more in terms of um, interesting how quickly genetics has come up um, in this. So our conversation today, as we mentioned, is on hypermobility spectrum disorders. Um, 
Do you mind to just share a very quick overview on kind of what conditions that more broad term encompasses? Um, and then maybe data on incidents, um, even how often you would expect as a primary care physician that we may see this in our offices? So the primary care physician is in a wonderful position to be able to determine whether the hypermobility in their patient is just a trait, like eye color. Is it just a trait or is it something that actually needs help? Is it symptomatic hypermobility? Are these the children who are constantly falling and getting hurt? Lots and lots of sprains. Interestingly, most patients with hypermobility sprain before they would break. So a lot of fractures are not necessarily the hypermobility, but lots of sprains and lots of injuries are. Um, is this a patient with nightly pain? Is this a patient whose um, childhood is marked with more pain than you would expect? And so it's with that symptomatic hypermobility then that we think about another diagnosis. The It probably is easiest to just sort of jump into those diagnostic criteria because sure. when they created the 2017 diagnostic criteria, they divided what we had known as Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or hypermobile EDS into two different diagnoses. It was hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos is now just a very small part of that range with the rest in hypermobility, symptomatic hypermobility, having the diagnosis of hypermobility spectrum disorder. The way we go about it is we evaluate the child and say, you know, which is it? You might say, well, what difference does it make? <laughs> well, it makes a difference in my mind because it helps the child understand and the parents understand the hypermobility without the danger of over-medicalization. Unfortunately, I see so many patients who, once they have that term, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, EDS, a vast majority of the patients take the information, say, oh, now I understand, and go on, continue to function well, and learn how to self-manage. There's a small percentage, though, that go down a deep, dark spiral. They find their connection with other people on the web. And then I've unfortunately lost several patients, not, not, I've lost them to good self-management is what I should say, because they then start saying, I need a wheelchair. I need an IV. I need this. I need that. Because then they've become immersed in not understanding their own journey and self-management, but they become immersed in a diagnosis, in a title, in an identity. Yes. So when we think about that 2017 diagnostic criteria, the change that was made with that is prior to that, anyone with hypermobility was symptomatic, probably was labeled hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Now we know the diagnostic criteria includes three basic criterion within it. The first is the hypermobility. And so let's get back to the hypermobility and see, well, what is actually a diagnostic for the hypermobility? What physical exam? What physical exam, exactly, exactly. And so still the best tool we have is the Byton scale. The Byton scale is not validated for children less than the age of six because hypermobility is really difficult to determine because so many children are so flexible. By the age of, some people down it to five, but six is a pretty good solid number. The Byton scale itself looks for 
excessive mobility. And so you have to remember the more thans. There are five different measures on it. They measure the, the pinky finger. Can it bend back beyond 90 degrees at the base when the child's hand is on a flat surface? They measure it. The second one is how floppy are the wrists? Elbow straight, thumb coming back to meet the wrist. And honestly, when you do this, it should feel like butter. If a person works and struggles and says, I can do this, and they almost break their thumb <laughs> trying to get it back, that may not necessarily qualify. Sure. The third is the hyperextension of the elbow. And the elbow has to hyperextend backwards or upside down more than 10 degrees. The knees also have to hyperextend more than 10 degrees. Okay. And then the child actually needs to be able to palm the floor with the palms right in front of the toes, knees straight. Okay. And so... As I've talked about all these degrees, one thing that is evident is goniometers. Even, I just keep a pocket goniometer with me, sure. but I tried initially to estimate, yep, that looks like it's more than 90, yep, that looks like it's more than 10. You can't estimate. A pocket goniometer is your friend to really determine whether that child meets the Biden score. The Biden score is age dependent. Those who are less than puberty, it, the Biden score needs to be six or above. Puberty up to the age of 50, it's five or above. And then for old people, it's four and above. And when you say puberty, yes. what do we define as puberty? Are you looking at good, tanner staging of a certain degree? or Good point. I'm a little bit more flexible in that. If I ask if they've had body changes, breast budding for girls, have the boys started growing hair, have they taken a height spurt? Um, that gives me a pretty good idea. Um, but hypermobility continues to change throughout puberty. I shadowed several EDS experts as I was learning this role, and one of the best experts, Dr. Tinkle in Indianapolis, said, you got to be careful. You really cannot diagnose hypermobility before puberty, and you definitely can't diagnose Ehlers-Danlos before puberty. Before I shadowed him. I had already been working in the clinic and I was following the criteria and I was diagnosing hypermobility before puberty. Now that I've been in the clinic for four and a half years, I'm seeing those same patients. They've gone through puberty and oh my goodness, they, they don't come any, they don't come close to meeting criteria. Sure. So what we now know is address the hypermobility early because as pediatricians, our entire job is to protect and to teach the child, to teach the person self-management. So if we identify the hypermobility early and they can protect their joints with the proper physical therapy, et cetera, and know which sports may or may not be conducive to protecting those joints, and those main ones are tumbling, trampoline, gymnastics, and football, if they can avoid those sports, if they can learn good joint protection early, whether they go on to meet the diagnostic criteria for Ehlers-Danlos or HSD, You've done your job as a pediatrician. You've guided them. You've helped them understand the hypermobility and how to protect it. Absolutely. I feel like I say every day to parents during checkups, this is preventative care. Yes. Yes, we need to do this. Yes, yes we need to follow yes. up. Yes. Hopefully this is not something that we'll have to deal with in the future right. because we're doing right. this now. So I think that's a great point to think about is to have that conversation, but in a very open way and say, we may not be able to diagnose this right now. We're seeing some of these signs, but let's address those signs so that hopefully it doesn't become, yeah. but we continue to follow right. and watch that. And if the focus is on hypermobility and joint protection, then if they outgrow it, fantastic. Okay. You've done your job.
definitely. Yeah. So, do you have a good um, just kind of information on incidents on how many in the general population would be considered hypermobile? So the last it can be up to fifteen percent, ten to fifteen percent. I think ten percent is a good number. Of that ten percent, probably one to two percent are symptomatic and have um, pain or the other symptoms we talked about. So in the old criteria, that hypermobility was basically it. Hypermobility and pain was it. Now in the new criteria, there's more in criterion two, which has three features. Feature A has a lot of skin and system findings. It's unusual stretch marks. And you might say, well, what's an unusual stretch mark? Strange places, over the shoulder, those, those straps on the back, behind the knee. Um, it's unusually soft skin, which is the least scientific element on that entire diagnostic criteria. Um, it's hyperextensible skin, and that is measured at a very specific place. It's non-dominant hand forearm, and you need to be able to pinch a 1.5 to 2 centimeter pinch. Interesting. Yeah. And then I don't think that's anything I would have ever thought about, right. but it makes sense, as you say, why yes. that would be the Yes. Mm-hmm. It also includes things like pisogenic papules of the heel, which is a very odd thing. A lot of people have those. They're never symptomatic, but they're also an indication of stretchy skin on the heel. Mm-hmm. It includes arm span to height ratio issues. It includes um, pelvic floor issues. And as they're trying to rethink the diagnostic criteria to focus it more on a pediatric adolescent population, some of those issues are being rethought. So there may indeed be published in the next six months some updated criteria for the pediatric adolescent population, which will take out some of those things that are really hard to determine in our age group. And I wanted to mention you did a wonderful job kind of giving us all those very specific criteria, Um, but also to mention those are listed in detail on our community. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. To be able to refer back. Right, Um, right. yeah. <laughs> Along that, though, something that may or may not be listed is the family history. And oftentimes I get families who come in and say, oh, yes, my my uncle's cousin has um, hypermobile EDS and it was diagnosed 20 years ago. The family history and the diagnostic criteria is for a first-degree relative meeting current criteria. So it needs to be someone in the immediate family who has been diagnosed with the current criteria. And Am the, I correct in saying that we don't have a true known genetic cause at this point, but there is at least a tendency? Which there's is, a tendency, absolutely. And, the, and that's the first degree relative. Correct, correct. And the third thing in that second criteria is um, symptoms. And the pain is very specific. Pain in two or more limbs every day without a day off for at least three months. So it's pretty specific, and then it's also dislocations. Um, So you can see that this is a pretty strict criteria for hypermobile EDS. But we, my 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 request is that people do not get hung up on the diagnosis. That people treat the patient, and the patient with symptomatic hypermobility needs to have that addressed. Just before we leave that diagnostic criteria, the third one is exclusions. This is the big thing on your on the community practice tool, because as a 
primary care provider, you're always thinking, is this symptomatic hypermobility that I can address through physical therapy, occupational therapy, joint protection, or is there something more? And that's what frightens so many people is, is this something more? So the the exclusion criteria include things like another form of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So I often talk to the patients about that, and I say, well, Ehlers-Danlos with the current criteria is now a blanket term for 14 different types of connective tissue disorders. Of those 14, 11 are extremely rare and extremely weird. They include things like severe scoliosis and toddlerhood, things that are we just don't so see. Those are some of those red Extre- flags that either extremely rare and weird. Yes. The other two forms are classical and vascular. Those two really would be on everybody's diagnostic radar screen. Classical, the number one sign is the skin is so incredibly fragile. These are the children that even as young kids just running and playing and even just tapping the ground, their skin ruptures. When you try to sew it together again, it dehisses. It keeps pulling apart. So the patients I've seen with classical, by the time they even reach preteen, you can see incredible scarring, usually on the shins, where they've just been inadvertently bumping against things as they've walked. Vascular is the one that scares everybody. Vascular, <laughs> vascular, there are th- yes, yes. Vascular, there are three main red flags. The first is a family history of a ruptured aneurysm or ruptured solid organ in a first degree family member within that generation or the generation above. So it's usually the child or the parent, and it has to have happened before the age of 40. So ruptures before the age of 40 in a close term generation. The second thing I look for is that acrogeria, which is very prematurely ancient looking hands. Once you see it, you will never forget it. It's an adolescent who has a hand that looks like a 90 year old. They're very, very prematurely aged hands. The third thing is people with vascular have very limited hypermobility, and they're usually never hypermobile in large joints below the waist. So when I see a child easily palm the floor, I say, congratulations, you've eliminated, (laughs) yes, you've eliminated any concern I would have had for vascular EDS. So then we go through the criteria, and... Most children, most adolescents fit on the hypermobility spectrum disorder. That is defined as symptomatic hypermobility, which does not meet criteria for hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. Again, my plea for the primary care providers is please, please, please don't use the term EDS unless you're absolutely sure and they meet that criteria because it can go down a dark path. That seems to tip them more. It does. Over-medicalization, right. So the HSD is is truly a very encompassing term. And when I talk to my patients about HSD, I talk about the three main things we consider with that. It's a big diagnosis. There's a lot in it. The first is the hypermobility. I talk about the joint protection. I talk about how hypermobility physical therapy focuses on the stabilizing mechanisms of the joints. I talk about the protection through arch supports because many patients with hypermobility have very lax arches in their feet and the hypermobility physical therapists have learned that if those arches collapse then the ankle knee hip and spine are more wobbly too and the more wobble means more wear and tear sure. and can you speak a little bit towards so we've mentioned physical therapy a great place to start yes. for yes. these patients with um, hsd especially symptomatic um, and just even the instance prior to even getting to physical therapy um, with 
the incidence of um, symptomatic patients. Do you find that those patients also maybe are more sedentary or not always? Do you, Great is question. there a kind of a, a link to that that might clue us in as well? On, Great question. What I see is a, is a mixture, and I I have quite a few superstar gymnasts and athletes and ballet dancers and those who just work and work and work and work, and they're still having a lot of pain and a lot of injuries. One of the ways I describe it is if you think about a joint, a hypermobile joint, instead of being a normal joint which stays together as it bends, a hypermobile joint just has too much movement within it. If there's increased movement, then there could be increased pain, increased joint fatigue, increased risk of injury, and early wear and tear, which can mean early onset arthritis. I often explain, if you think about the mechanisms of a joint, it includes the stabilizing muscles and structures, and then the power muscles that are supposed to move it. With a hyperlax, hypermobile joint, those stabilizers are not functioning because they're just too loose. They can't do their job. When those stabilizing muscles don't do their job, the power muscles think they have to take over. And when power muscles are asked to do a job they were never designed for, they get tired, cranky, and can't do a good job. So I have quite a few super athletes who keep trying and trying and trying, and their power muscles get stronger and stronger and are pulling the heck out of those little stabilizers who can't keep up. And then they get the subluxations and the dislocations. Sure. So I have some who are very, very active and some who aren't. So it's it's a range. Definitely mix. I think that's a great way to break that down for a patient yeah. sitting there yeah. and, and just how that occurs within the joint itself. Um, could you speak a little bit about the role of instructing our patients with these you know, potential diagnoses on just low impact exercise and what the recommendations are for that, you know, just even little things that we can do outside of the realm of getting them in to see a um, hypermobility PT right. uh, that they can do at home or that they can do even prior to being evaluated by the So first of all, any time they can have in the swimming pool, any time in the pool is wonderful because the barometric pressure or the, the pressure of the pool really, really does help stabilize those stabilizers. So water activities are phenomenal. They are really something that if a person has access to a pool, use it. Um, the other thing too is you may pick up on families who are trying really hard to get help for their child and they're getting worse and worse. Hypermobility physical therapy, I, I tease and I apologize to my hypermobile physical therapist, but I explain it as being the most boring physical therapy in the world because <laughs> they don't want you really powering those power muscles. They want to try to build up those stabilizer muscles. And if you have a child in physical therapy who's getting much worse, you may wonder if they're working with standard physical therapy that's focusing on power muscles instead. Chiropractic is not well tolerated in many people with hypermobility because if you think about it, you're trying to preserve those stabilizers and adjustments may or may not promote that. Sure. Yeah. So definitely the low impact, the pool, just um, do you have a specific recommendation for kind of amount of low impact exercise, how often? Right. So often when I have a patient with hypermobility, I describe three main buckets that 
help them understand what's going on. And the hypermobility is definitely the first one. The second one is what I call receptors. And there are two main receptors that are very affected by hypermobility. I always say I'm a very simple thinker. So when I think of a receptor, I think of our exam rooms. When they remodeled them, they put all our lights on motion sensors. <laughs> and a motion sensor light is a really good example of a receptor. Our motion turns on those lights and keeps them on. I explained that in our bodies, we have lots of things that do that. Something triggers something else to happen. Two sets of those receptors are extremely sensitive to hypermobility. One is the muscle spindle fiber. Muscle spindle fiber just is exactly what it sounds like. It wraps around and through the muscle, and depending where that muscle is in space, sends millions of messages to the brain. Brain makes a map of where those are coming from and then knows where your body is. If your brain knows where your body is, it knows how to protect it. The problem is with hypermobility, we know those muscle spindle fibers are not intact. They are looser, they are more loosely held. So the brain's working with an incomplete radar map. My analogy is always if you're charging your cell phone, you've got to have a good plug of the wall, a good plug of the phone, or it's not going to charge. Your brain's not getting charged from those mm -hmm. muscle spindle fibers. And that can look like ankle rolling, clumsiness, bumping into walls, tripping up and down steps, dropping things. That's actually something that most of my patients experience, even if they're excellent dancers, even if they're excellent athletes, because when they're in their sport or in their dance, they're concentrating so hard that they can overcome it. But their baseline is the, the poor proprioception and poor body awareness. Ankle rolling is an excellent example of that, because if you think about it, if your ankle even started to roll and your, and your brain saw it, it would correct it but your brain doesn't see it till you've already tripped or fallen. So that's one is the is the muscle spindle fiber. The second is the baroreceptor. Baroreceptors live in the big blood vessels and their job is to make sure enough blood gets to the brain at all times. The way they're supposed to function is when you go from sitting down to standing up, gravity wants to pull the blood all to your feet. It's those receptors that are supposed to squeeze off the blood vessels, get it back to the brain. The problem is with hypermobility, especially in the lower body, those baroreceptors simply don't work. And so people go from sitting to standing and they get lightheaded, they get dizzy, they faint, rapid heart rate, brain fog, all those things that we see when there's not enough blood to the brain at all times. So That's a perfect lead in to maybe mentioning a little bit about POTS or Right, right. So most patients will come in and they say, I must have POTS, I must have POTS, I must have POTS. And I say, you know what? Almost everyone with hypermobility has some degree of orthostatic intolerance. What I just described with the baroreceptors is that orthostatic intolerance. A lot of people with hypermobility have that. That can be caused by a lot of different things. It's associated with hypermobility, post-COVID, a post-viral syndrome. Um, it can be associated with lots of autoimmune disorders. There's no one thing that causes orthostatic intolerance. If you think about it as a huge spectrum, POTS is one teeny tiny edge of that long spectrum of orthostatic intolerance. POTS is a very specific diagnosis, standing for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and it includes blood pressure changes when you're lying down, sitting up, standing up, but more specifically, a prolonged elevated heart rate for a certain amount of time and a certain amount of elevation. 
that diagnosis is not something I make because it's it's not in my purview to make that. Sure. But but I try to counsel my patients that whether you call it POTS or orthostatic intolerance, orthostatic intolerance or OI is probably the more appropriate diagnosis for most people with hypermobility. And then I address that more when I get into my third bucket. So the last thing I see on the second bucket, which is receptors, which was the muscle spindle fibers and the baroreceptors, is that headaches are very common in people with hypermobility. The number one reason is not enough blood to the brain at all times. The number two reason is neck joint laxity. If a child is doing a lot through the day where they're leaning forward, their head is in front of their shoulders, they're slouching down, the average adult head weighs 10 to 12 pounds, and that's like lifting a bowling ball and holding it at an odd angle. It can really hurt your wrist. Well, that bowling ball of your head, if you're slouching forward, is really hurting and pulling against the capsule of your skull and it causes those tension headaches. Those are the kids who are fine in the morning, but midday they start having these headaches in their forehead, top of their head. It's because they've been slouching. Now, mind you, with those muscle spindle fiber issues, a lot of children don't know they're slouching. So the physical therapy helps address that as well. And I always caution families that if you find yourself, if you find your child really slouching forward, raise what they're looking at. A tilt table on their desk at school, put their books up on something so that they're not bending over and, and slouching so much during the day, and that may indeed help. Okay. But that leads me to the third bucket. It's the autonomic nervous system. When I hear autonomic, I think automatic because it's your heart rate, your blood pressure, your breathing, your digestion. The autonomic nervous system has two parts. One part sympathetic that we know is fight or flight. The other is parasympathetic that we know is rest and digest. I always explain to my patients those are two parts of the same nervous system, so they must balance. In happy, healthy, well-functioning people, they balance in the mid-range. In people with hypermobility, because the brain is getting so many mixed messages, it doesn't know where the body is in space. It's not getting enough blood to the brain at all times. When the brain gets mixed messages, it always does the same thing to protect you. It always goes into fight or flight. If the fight or flight is up, the rest and digest must be down. So a way raised up fight or flight looks like overthinking, anxiety, trouble turning your brain off at night to go to sleep, increased pain, increased pain, increased pain, and fatigue. People are exhausted because they're always in fight or flight. If that's up, the rest and digest is down. So even if people can get to sleep, they don't feel rested. And the digestive system can be all over the place with irritable bowel, constipation, all those things. You asked about exercise. And this is the one thing we know that helps reset that fight or flight in people with hypermobility. And that is exercise to get your heart rate elevated for a sustained 30 minutes. The reason that 30 minutes is magic is because that's when most people's bodies release norepinephrine, which over time reduces that fight or flight. But here's the hitch, and this is where primary care can help. If a child is doing a cardio that's too hard for their joints, too hard for their body, or above their limits of endurance, that fight or flight stays up. So if you have a child coming in, just can't sleep, is too anxious, just can't stop their racing thoughts, and they're hypermobile, look at what they're doing. If they're 
if they're either not doing anything, as you mentioned earlier, are they, are they not very active or are they very active but doing things their bodies can't endure? And so what we generally recommend are swimming activities, um, biking. Biking is excellent. Rowing machine is excellent. And the reason we mostly recommend if patients are very symptomatic to start with those exercises is because of those baroreceptors. Most patients with hypermobility, if they're really symptomatic, if they try to exercise standing up, running, active walking, their baroreceptors are not functioning well enough and they just quickly go above their limits of endurance. So the, so the code words are stay active in joint-sparing ways within your limits of endurance. That takes a lot of time to understand what that means. And for many of our patients, they're trying to figure out, well, what is my limit of endurance? And with hypermobility, it can change daily. So it's, it's trying to listen, to understand, to help the, the patients keep active within that limits of endurance. Perfect. And then we talked a little bit about orthostatic symptoms, but um, in specific, do you have recommendations for just fluid intake, sodium? Absolutely. Absolutely. So for an average size person, um, what we've learned helps those baroreceptors is to keep those blood vessels full. And that's usually about 80 to 100 ounces of fluid, mostly water in a day. Um, in most patients, that's usually enough. In some, they need to add extra electrolytes. And what the electrolytes do is to just cause fluid retention. So it keeps the fluid in the blood vessels longer. Many patients get the idea, oh, salt is good, but then they don't increase their fluid and their kidneys really don't like that. So I say you can add on the electrolytes, add on the salt, but make sure you're getting the fluid in. The third thing is compression stockings. You know, even knee-high oh, wow. compression stockings because that helps the stability of the blood vessels in the legs. Makes sense. And the fourth thing is if they always get dizzy when they stand up, ankle pumps. Move those, move, those, move those feet, move those calves before you stand up so that the big calf muscles are helping pump blood back up to the brain. Yeah, perfect. So I think that's great, you know, just thinking prior to even referral, how many of those different things we as primary care physicians can go ahead and recommend. So everything you just mentioned, the very good sleep hygiene, um, the exercise, but being very careful, like you said, not overactive, not sedentary, mm -hmm. those joint sparing mm -hmm. exercises. Mm -hmm. That was wonderful information. Um, and then just to kind of refer back, which, which I had mentioned earlier to the community practice support tool that has all of this because it, you've given us such wonderful specific information. And I know my brain's, woo, you know, which is great. That's, that's what we need. But to be able to refer back to that support tool, um, I think it is perfect. Uh, these are wonderful things to think about even prior to referral. Um, so one thing I would like to touch on as well, Dr. Blackledge, is when do you think that we've talked a lot about, a lot, I'm sorry, a lot about self-management and a lot about um, things that primary care physicians can do in their office, which is wonderful information, but when do we say, okay, this is beyond us and <laughs> we, need, we need help, we need um, to refer to Cincinnati Children's or to refer to at the hypermobility clinic for extra help from the specialist. So one thing we know is that hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile EDS 
are, have multi-system involvement. We've mentioned some of it, but patients can have migraines, they can have gastroparesis, they can have all sorts of issues that make functioning more difficult. I believe that if we can address that and have the patient build their team to better understand, as in the headache clinic, if they're having migraines that are interfering with function, as in GI, to see if there's something that can be done to help with the irritable bowel symptoms. I think I call it building your village, building your village of specialists. And that's something that could be done from the primary care provider. It could also be done through our clinic. I honestly don't feel that I do anything magical in the hypermobility <laughs> clinic, but I have the time. That's what separates practice in the community with what I can do. When I was first working in the hypermobility clinic, I was also working in adolescent medicine at the same time, and patients inadvertently got scheduled at the wrong clinic. And so I needed to try to work hypermobility clinic patients into a very short slot of time. Wow. It was impossible. I couldn't do it. Super difficult. I'm, I'm the same provider. I could not do it in that structure. So that's one thing for the community physicians to to just look at is this something that building a relationship with a patient over time can help them just nurture and guide in smaller smaller sections of time or is this something that you know what I need somebody else to at least take this first this first batch of time and, and do the teaching and then I'll follow up on it yes, um, that makes sense that's perfect well we very much appreciate you sharing your expertise and I also just wanted to take a moment to thank you for not only all your service over the years to the community but to all your patients um, at Cincinnati Children's as well as all your help to us as general pediatricians um, in treating these patients because like you said it's it sounds like a little bit of a labor of love right and a lot of time um, and I know you say you don't do anything magical but I would guess some of your patients probably disagree with that so um, but, and, and also, again, to thank you because um, you will be, um, how do we want to, don't, I don't love the word retire because I'm sure there's, there's big and better, you know, things out for, um, or in, you know, in the future for you, but you will be at least kind of stepping back from your position at Cincinnati Children's at the end of next year, um, and so we feel very blessed that we got to speak to you today, and um, hear all this wonderful information from you and I just want to thank you for that. Well thank you. 